All right, if you can hear me out in the lobby on our new speakers, it is 9.30, so why don't we go ahead and get started. If I could get everybody to come in here and sit down, and we'll ask somebody to close those doors back there. There we go. Well, good morning. Have you ever heard anyone ask this question? If God were all-powerful, he would be able to prevent evil. And if God were all good, he would surely desire to prevent evil. So if God were all-powerful and all-good, there would be no evil. But we see evil all around us, don't we? So the conclusion must be, Doesn't this prove that there is no such thing as an all-powerful, all-good God? Well, what what would you say to these questions? If somebody came up to you, have any any of you ever had somebody bring these charges to you? What, What would you say to them? And more importantly, what would you say to these questions in your own heart? Surely the, the existence of evil proves there can be no God. What would you say to that? That is our topic for today as we continue to work through theology proper, which is the doctrine of God the Father. We're taking up this supreme problem of our world, the existence of evil, and we're going to talk about something known as theodicy. Theodicy, which comes from Greek words, theos for God and decay, which is the base word for righteousness and justice. So theodicy is a defense of God's righteousness or justice. It declares that despite the existence of evil, God is indeed all-powerful and all-good. So that is what we are going to talk about today. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump in. Heavenly Father, once again I realize how inadequate I am to teach these things about you. Lord, thank you for um, your word. Father, bless your word. Bless the hearing of your word. Bless our hearts and minds that we would understand that we might worship you more rightly. In your son's name we pray, amen. So this morning, I'm going to ask four questions. This will serve as our outline. What is the origin of evil? What's the impact of evil? Number three, what's the purpose of evil? And then we'll finish up with number four. What is the future of evil? I want to give proper credit where credit is due. My primary source for today's lesson is from a man named Colin Eakin, who studied at the Master's Seminary under MacArthur. He wrote a wonderful book called God's Glorious Story. And of course, we are all in this series uh, relying primarily on John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew's biblical doctrine, and I've also gained some insights from Wayne Grudem's Bible doctrine. So my presentation today is from these men who rely on the power of Scripture. All I've done is rearrange their thoughts in a logical pattern, and this four questions will serve as our outline. So let's dive in and begin with question number one. What is the origin of evil in the world? And we have to go back all the way to the beginning in Genesis, which means origins, This is where we learn of the origin of the supreme problem of our world, of evil. And this is an extremely important chapter to understand, Genesis 3, because if we don't understand the entrance of evil into our world, if we don't understand the purpose 
of evil in our world will have a hard time understanding our human condition, which we will talk about, and that's my condition. That's all of our condition. It's the condition of every man, woman, child on earth prior to salvation. That is why it's important that we understand Genesis 3. And if you have any doubts that we're all in a depraved condition, go to Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we fail to understand the, the entrance of evil and the purpose of evil in the world, we may have a hard time understanding God's solution to our condition and his final solution, which we will talk about. So that's what we would like to do today. It's a very important thing that we understand Genesis 3. Now, let me step back a second and ask you, if you were in charge of creating the world, what kind of a world would you create? I know you're not God, I'm not God, but if, if you were in charge, what kind of a world would you create? Most of you would probably say, oh, definitely one without suffering, without oppression, without racism. Uh, in my world, there'd be no violence, no bullying, uh, no physical or sexual or verbal abuse of any kind. There would be no, uh, no sin, no evil for sure. In my world, there would only be happiness and kindness, justice, beauty, Love, perfection, that would be the world I would create. I would imagine most of us would, would say something like that. And do you know that that is exactly the kind of world that God created? If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, you remember that God created the perfect world for Adam and Eve to live in, for humans to inhabit. There was no such thing as sin. And in God's original creation, there was absolutely no such thing as evil. If you remember what God said at the end of the sixth day in Genesis 1.31, what did he declare all of his creation to be? Very good. There was no sin, no evil in the world. And God was not a harsh ruler. He gave Adam and Eve one specific, one explicit instruction only. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what is the origin of evil? Well... Again, in Genesis 3, if you look at the first seven verses, here is where we are introduced to the entrance of evil. We're introduced for the first time to Satan, the devil, who invades God's creation in the form of a serpent. Have you ever wondered why a serpent? I always wondered that. We don't know. But that's how he manifested. In his fall, J.D. and I were talking about this the other day, when did Satan actually fall? Well, it had to have been sometime after day six, which was very good would have been sometime after day seven because God declared the seventh day to be holy and he blessed it. So we don't know, but sometime after day seven. We do get, I found this really, really interesting, some background information, some really interesting background information about Satan from, of all places, Ezekiel 28. Here we find that Satan was created as a perfect, wise, and beautiful angel it says in verse 14 of Ezekiel 28, You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. But then in verse 15, notice what Satan did. He rebelled. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. And that's when the situation changed. If you look down into verse 17, it hints at why he chose to sin. It says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. 
According to Wayne Grudem, this is very important, Satan was the originator of sin. Satan was the originator of sin, and he sinned before any human being did. If you look again in verse 16, it says that he sinned. The New Testament informs us that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. This is John chapter 8, verse 44, and he's a liar and the father of lies. 1 John 3, verse 8, the devil sinned from the beginning. And Grudem points out that even though both of these um, scriptures use the term from the beginning, it doesn't mean that Satan was a sinner from the beginning of the creation of the world. It doesn't even begin, uh, mean that he was a, a sinner from the beginning of his own existence. Again, if we go back to Ezekiel 28, look at verse 15 again. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then, of course, God cast him down. We see that in verses uh, 16 and 17. And so then, after being thrown to the earth, Satan then began to tempt Eve, who tempted Adam. And we know that this is what Satan's done all throughout history. Remember in uh, Matthew chapter 4, he tempted Christ in the wilderness. He would go on to tempt Judas Iscariot to betray Christ, and that's what he's done to all of us. He's the great tempter, the adversary. Going back to Genesis 3, we notice that first, Satan employed a tactic that he still uses today. It's very effective. He got Eve to doubt God's word. You remember he said, did God really say that if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die? And then he lies to her. He says, surely you won't die. He was right for a little while. Adam lived a long time, but he did die. So Eve goes to Adam, and Adam chooses to listen to what Satan had told Eve. So instead of choosing to be obedient to God, they chose another path. Now, they could have done what we, we should all do when we hear false teaching. You know, They could have said something like, hey, Satan, I, I can see that you are cleverly twisting what God has said to trick us. And you're trying to be my friend. You're trying to act like you're on my side, but I can see that you're really just trying to fool me to get me to follow you and not God. But that's not what they did, is it? Instead, they rebelled. They disobeyed against what God had told them. And right here in Genesis 3, again, this is one of the places we find an origin of a foundational Christian doctrine. This is where you find the origin and the the definition of sin, it's rebellion against God and disobedience to God. Now, this is a very, very, very seminal, important moment in world history. Let's read what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So Adam is telling us that through this one act, when Adam disobeyed, sin entered the world through him, and through his sin, death came into the world. And we know from this scripture that as a result of Adam's sin, every one of his descendants, that's us, have inherited his spiritual corruption and have been born with a sin nature 
I don't have it up here, but if you look at Romans chapter 6 and 7 and James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it says we're all naturally inclined to sin. We are all born with a sin nature. And our sin, this is interesting, do you know our sin is the reason that we all physically die? You know, the Bible says it's what we deserve. The Bible calls it our wages. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. So again, right here in Genesis 3, we see the entrance of evil into the world, which brought death with it. And as I said, I think it's been about two years ago, we started our adult Sunday school and I got to teach on Genesis 1 through 11, and I made the point, point. I want to reiterate it again. This fall, this moment that happened, is a seminal moment in world history. It, it literally happened in real space-time history to two very real people. It was an actual historical event. Anybody that tells you that Genesis has poetry or allegory in it, they don't know what they're talking about. It is the genre of historical narrative from the first verse to the last verse. So it's very important we understand that this event affected both the physical world that we live in, the material world, and the spiritual world. And it explains why our world is so messed up. It's why we have corruption, why there's evil, why there's death. Because Satan rebelled against God. He brought evil to Adam. Adam brought sin and death because he and his wife rebelled against God. And scripture is very, very clear on this. So, although Satan was the originator of evil, Adam is given the blame by God for death entering the world. And what's interesting is J.D. and I were talking through this. Even though Satan brought evil, Adam brought death, and he's responsible for sin. But Adam and his descendants are redeemable. Satan is not this is what the, the author of uh, Hebrews 2, verse 16 says, For surely it is not with angels that he helps, but he helps the descendants of Abraham. So that's good news. So now that we've dealt with the origin of evil in the world, let's move on to question number two. What is the impact of evil? What is the impact of evil? We're going to stay here in the Garden of Eden for a minute longer since this is where evil first manifested in our realm. We need to talk about what it did to the world, but especially we're going to camp a little bit on what, what evil has done to us, what, it, what its impact has been on humanity. So what happened there? What was the impact? If you remember in Genesis 3, God tells Adam and Eve that because of their disobedience, life is going to be very difficult. Eve is going to have pain and difficulty in bearing children. And for Adam and all men, it's going to be extremely difficult just to scratch out a living. Everything changed. There was a curse on the physical world. And, of course, sin brought death, but it's more profound than you would think. It's not just a physical death. God said, of course, um, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return, meaning physical death. But the profundity of this is that there's absolute spiritual death. If you go to uh, Ephesians 2, the first three verses, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
that's Satan, if you didn't know that, the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So according to Paul, again, all humans are born sinners, and we are therefore spiritually dead. Not only are we going to die physically, we are absolutely, profoundly, spiritually dead to God and to the truth. So let's look at a few more passages. I want to, I want to see if we can unpack the impact that evil has had on us, again, so that we can appreciate our own inherited condition should have, help us to see how absolute this spiritual death is here. And you can see on the beginning of the slide that this is establishing the doctrine of what we know as total depravity. So listen to these scriptures. We just read from Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go to Isaiah 64, 6. It says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I've heard Joe Harvey mention this uh, many times, I think. Uh, we also say, like filthy rags, our greatest deeds are like filthy rags. Ecclesiastes 9.3 tells us that the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Psalm 143.2 says, No one is righteous. I'm sorry, no one living is righteous before you, O God. And then Proverbs 20, verse 9, asks a really good question. Who can say I've made my heart pure and I'm clean from sin? Certainly not me. And it's not just that we're slaves to sin, that we've passively inherited this sin nature from the curse of sin. You know, we also have Satan, who is our adversary. I think 1 Peter 5, 8 said, uh, be watchful, be sober-minded, because your adversary, Satan, prowls around like a hungry lion looking for souls to devour. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 here says, The God of this world, again, that's Satan. Ephesians 2 called him the prince of the power of the air. Here, he's called the God of this world. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ. So Satan, our great enemy, in addition to us being born spiritually dead, also blinds the minds of unbelievers. And so I'll stop right here and say that just in case there's someone here who still believes, after we've heard just a few of these scriptures, if someone here still believes that there's something intrinsically, inherently good inside of us that allows us to pursue righteousness on our own or to seek after God on our own, well, let me read another scripture. It's listed at the bottom here. You can follow along with me if you'd like to go to Romans 3. Look at chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and I'll read this for us. As it is written, none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Again, this, these scriptures build the case for what we know as total depravity. And I like the way Colin Eakin 
phrases it. I think maybe it's better understood as absolute inability. So the Bible teaches us, and we just went through a few of these verses, that every human being has a fundamental and complete incapacity and inability to respond to the gospel on their own. And we've seen in the scriptures we just read that this is true for everyone, according to Romans 5, 12. All have sinned. Absolute inability to respond to the gospel on our own. I was not taught this growing up. This was really hard for me to digest. So if you're wondering why, why I'm spending so much time talking about this, as we're trying to answer the question of what was the impact of evil, it's because we need to recognize that our basic human problem as humans is not that we lack self-esteem. It's not that we're out of harmony with our environment. It's not that we're good people and that we need to become better. And it's not even that we're bad and we need to become good. It's that we are absolutely born into spiritual death. We are literally dead and we need to be made alive again. That's the impact of evil on the world. Fortunately, since I'm giving you some really heavy news right here, there is the gospel, which means what? Two words. Good news. Good news. But the gospel can't be good news unless there's horrible, terrible, awful, no good, very bad news without it, right? And this is where we need to start talking and remembering that Christ did come once. We need to talk about what God has already done on our behalf to defeat evil. So let's finish up our, our discussion on the impact of evil with some hope. Let's remember the first time that Christ came down to earth and he was crucified and resurrected, he defeated death. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, if you want to go to Ephesians 2 real quick. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Who made us alive? He did. It is by grace that you've been saved. If you continue down to verses 8 and 9, again, this is still Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, he's talking about the faith, this faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Flip back to the fourth gospel, John, chapter 6, real quick. John chapter 6. And go down to verse 29. John 6, 29 says, This is the work of God that you believe in him, whom he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in him, whom he has sent. Skip down to verse 44 in John chapter 6. This is Jesus speaking. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now skip down to verse 65. Jesus reiterates the same thing. Again, this is the words of Jesus. I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And we could look at a lot of other passages that say the exact same thing. So again, what is the impact of evil on the world and on humanity? It says that it brought with it physical death. We covered that. It also brought 
spiritual death, which leaves us as humans not just unwilling to pursue our unrighteousness, but completely incapable of doing so. So again, faith is a gift from God. It's got to be given to the dead. So God is the one who saves. And this is what gives us hope because, and this is very important, this is the point, it brings him glory, not us. We're not that glory worthy. And that kind of is a good hint to the next question. What is the purpose of evil? Why, why would God allow corruption into a perfect creation? Why would a perfect holy God even ordain evil to exist? It's a really hard question. It's one that I have grappled with for a long time. In the past, I've dealt with this question, and I would just punt on it. The church I was brought up in, we weren't very Berean. We would usually just refer to the mysteries. Uh, I could do the Deuteronomy 29, 29 response. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And I think I said this to someone just not too long ago as we talked about this very topic. But, and, and that is a legitimate answer. Sometimes there are mysteries we do not understand, but if we dig into the scriptures, and we're trying to establish a theodicy here for the problem of the existence of evil, we can do a little bit better than that. So let's see if we can be Berean and go through the scriptures. And let's start our theodicy by acknowledging a few basic truths. We all understand we've established that evil exists, right? Evil is rampant in the world. Physical evil, the Bible calls it calamity, and moral evil. We also know, I hope we all understand, God exists. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And he's perfect in love and he's perfectly holy. And if you were here for J.D.'s lesson last week, as he talked about sovereignty, God is perfectly sovereign. What does that mean? Does anybody remember what sovereignty means in just a few words? It means he controls absolutely everything, including evil. Let's look at some more passages here. Proverbs 16, 4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. 1 Samuel 2, verses 6 and 7, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Wow. Isaiah 45, 7, the Lord speaking through the prophet says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. Again, there's the physical evil that we see in the world. I am the Lord who does all these things. And Amos 3, 6 asks this question, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? I mean, when I look at these, you sit back and go, wow, are you kidding me? Wow. This is what scripture plainly says. These, these few passages tell us, again, what the heading of my slide is, that God is perfectly sovereign and he controls absolutely everything, including evil. And I got to tell you, as I considered this, uh, I added this last verse here. Ephesians 1.11, it says that it is he who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And it about brought me to tears as I, as I contemplated what everything on this slide is saying. As I think about everything that has happened in the past year, and we see lockstep evil in concert 
being perpetuated on an unsuspecting and naive humanity, and sometimes I get angry about that. Many of us have talked about this, but man, look at this. God is perfectly sovereign. He controls absolutely everything, including evil, and he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Praise God. There is absolutely nothing, including evil, that exists outside of his plan or purpose. He knows everything that can be known. He anticipates everything that there ever will be, and he has comprehensive power to do anything and everything that can be done, including power over evil. This is what the Bible says about our God. And in that perfect knowledge, in that perfect power, with perfect holiness, God ordains everything to proceed according to his perfect plan. And we need to remember that. I need to remember that. So I thank God that I got to work through this lesson. To summarize, we know that evil exists. God exists. He's the only true and sovereign God of the Bible who controls and sustains all things. And that leads us to a third conclusion, which is inescapable. God wills evil to exist. Think about that. Given that both God and evil exist, this conclusion is an indisputable reality. Now, please listen to what I'm about to say very carefully. I want this to be unmistakably clear. God did not and does not originate evil. God did not and does not originate evil. We know who did that. That was Satan. God does ordain its existence, but Scripture is very clear that he is not the author of evil. Let's go through some Scriptures real quick. 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Habakkuk 1.13 and Psalm 5.4 reinforce that God is only pure and holy and good. Psalm 92.15 says there is no unrighteousness in him. So the unmistakable conclusion here from these passages is that God does not in any manner or circumstance invent evil or introduce evil or cause evil. That was Satan. But this, and this is key, if you have an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign God who does everything as he pleases and evil exists, then by definition, you have a God who ordained evil to exist. And I understand if you recoil at that statement, I get it. This has been hard for me to accept, but we, we fall under the authority of Scripture. This is what the Bible tells us. If you're in that camp with me, I was brought up not, not to understand these things. Remember this. Remember the evil that happened at the cross when Christ, the perfect lamb, went there to die. That was not plan B. God didn't just have to come up with a Hail Mary when, when evil entered the world and messed up all his plans. That was his plan from the beginning. Let's look at 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. It says that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So this means that before the creation, 
Before sin, God planned that Christ would go to the cross and die for sinners. This was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That was never plan B. But God still did not originate or create evil. He did not invent it. He cannot induce evil. But evil has always been under his control for his purpose for which he ordained it. Remember the book of Job. Satan had to come to God and ask his permission to sift and test Job. And God had to give him permission. Joe Harvey says Satan is God's lackey. I like that. He didn't prevent evil. He ordained it. So why? This is the question we're asking here. Why? And the answer is because God had a purpose for evil. God has a purpose for evil. From the very beginning, God had a predetermined plan for the defeat of evil. Remember this. God is a savior of sinners. I've got a number of passages here. God is referred to as our Savior. Christ came into the world to save sinners. God is a Savior of sinners. And we know that in one sense, we we mentioned when Christ came the first time, he defeated death on the cross. He rose from the dead. God the Father, who is all-loving, is all-powerful, ordained evil to exist so that through his Son... He might put his attributes on display at the crucifixion crucifixion and resurrection. Think about it. On the cross, God's righteousness was on display. Righteousness means you're just. You must punish evil. He poured out all his wrath on Christ to punish the evil that we all perpetuated. And in doing so, God's love was on display and his mercy was on display. All that was accomplished the first time Christ came to earth. And guess what? He's coming again, isn't he? Christ is coming again. That's what we are guaranteed in Scripture. And that brings us to our fourth question. What is the future of evil? This is where it starts to get exciting. And as J.D. and I were talking through this outline a few weeks ago at the Big Biscuit, we came to this question, what's the future of evil? And J.D. said something I'll never forget. He said, you know, Scott... Evil has an expiration date. (laughs) I like that. It certainly does. Evil definitely has an expiration date. So, we know that evil intruded the creation so that God might unveil his true, awesome glory on the cross. But just as necessarily, we know that evil is going to come to an ultimate end. God will ultimately, once and for all, end it. One day soon, I hope, I hope, Maranatha, please, Lord Jesus, come again soon. One day soon, we hope he'll execute his plan for the complete annihilation and permanent eradication of evil from the world. This is what scripture reveals to us as we begin to look at some scriptures here. Uh, this first one, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, it reveals to us about the end of the wicked nations and all the evil that they are perpetuating. God speaks to his, speaks to his son through the prophet saying, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 110, verses 5 and 6. 
The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This is talking about the day of the Lord. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. And then this from Daniel 2.44. God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will break into pieces all these evil kingdoms and bring them to an end. And then we go to a New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. Again, this is speaking of this future day of the Lord when Christ comes back. And then in the end, I mean, he's going to be here for a little while. There's the day of wrath, and then there's the final putting away of Satan. Then comes the end when he destroys the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I see some smiles, isn't it? Yeah. Let's go to Revelation 21, verse 8. This is what's going to happen on the day of judgment when Christ comes back. For as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we all die a first death. The second death is eternal spiritual death. This is what Jesus will do the next time he comes down from heaven when he comes to judge the non-believing world. And you remember back when Jesus came. He came as a lamb in meekness. This is one of my favorite old pictures. You can see the blood pouring from the lamb. I don't recall the, uh, somebody probably knows this, but I just like this one. The book of Revelation refers to Jesus 29 times as the lamb. And that's how he was depicted the first time he came. He was a sacrificial lamb led to slaughter. But guess what? When he comes back a second time, that is not how he will return. So let's go to Revelation 19. I'm going to read to you. Verses 11 through 16. This describes Christ's second coming. This is awesome. There should leave no doubt here as to who he is and what he's about to do. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows besides himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Remember in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He will come back as the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, continuing on in verse 14, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. Say it with me. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So why did God allow evil to exist? Because on that day, when he defeats Satan and evil, when Christ returns to obliterate 
evil for all eternity, every human being on earth and all the host of heaven will see why God allowed evil to exist. Because his attributes will be publicly and unmistakably put on display. And on that day, God's wrath against sin and evil and his absolute righteousness will be on display. Romans 9.22 tells us that God, in purposing to display his wrath against sin and against evil, demonstrates his power against it. And he endured the existence of sin and evil so that it could fulfill his purpose. And on this day, God puts his glory on display in full. So that is the answer given to us very plainly. God willed and ordained evil to exist for his glory. The key theme of the entire Bible is God's plan to redeem mankind from sin for his glory. That is how we deal with the existence of evil in the world because all of our hope is in Jesus Christ. That is our theodicy. And that's where we have to end for today. I hope this lesson has been helpful. I always say when I teach, I don't know if anybody else learns anything, but I was deeply impacted by these scriptures and what I learned here. So remember, if you have a question or a thought you'd like to ask, I would refer you to JD first. If you want to talk to me about it, please do so. But also, remember, we will, and when we're done with theology proper, we'll do another question and answer session. So if you have questions you want to email, send them to info at rhlawrence.org, and hopefully we can deal with those later. So as for now, you're dismissed, and I'll welcome you to come back here in about 15 minutes for worship.